Exodus 27, we'll read verses 9 through 19, and then 38, we will read 9 through 20. Moses writes in verse 9, You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side. The court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the cord on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be fifteen cubits, and their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen, twenty cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, and breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And then in chapter 38, beginning in verse 9, Moses writes, And he made the court, for the south side of the hangings of the court were of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. For the north side there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits, their ten pillars and their ten bases. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, fifty cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate were fifteen cubits, and their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side. On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen, and the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filled with silver. And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It was twenty cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court, and their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals were, and their fillets were of silver. And all the pegs of the tabernacle and for their court all around were of bronze. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the opportunity to come together around your word, your sacrament, and the fellowship and the prayer of your saints, whom you have called together by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. I confess my own faults and infirmities before you. I confess that even this morning I have been guilty of anger, of pride, of jealousy, and of resentment, of not loving one whom I ought to have loved, of having not paid enough attention to the, to the hard work that I was being called to this morning. Father, I pray your forgiveness and I lean upon your grace and the guidance of your Holy Spirit. I ask, Father, that I would be nothing more than a mouthpiece for you to your people that what would be put before them would not be my own skills and my own talents and anything else that I might have to offer that is worthless in your sight, but, Father, that you would use me to rightly divide your word of truth. I pray that you would bless these people, your hearers, 
their ears as they hear, their eyes as they see the words on their page, their minds as they think and understand with hearts of understanding that you have given to them. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. I read a Facebook post this week from a popular pastor in certain circles that I run in that his point was well made about, Pastor, your people have been entertained all week long. And he gave some statistics of, you know, how many hours of television and how many hours of radio and how many hours on their phone and on social media and so on and so forth. You get the picture. And, and of course, he ends this list of statistics with don't entertain them tomorrow, but rather give them what they need, the very word of God. And I really wanted to comment and go, I don't think you know what text I'm preaching this week. I might have to kind of beef it up just a little bit. But nonetheless, as, as I thought through uh, this passage, whenever Brad sent me, you know, what text he would have me to do, um, in my arrogance, I was immediately like, yeah, the court, that sounds great. And then I read and I studied and I prayed and I read and I studied and I prayed and I'm going, man, yeah, this, uh, this may be kind of tough. And you may be thinking the same thing. You may be, this is kind of tough. This is that passage, if you're doing your annual, you know, through the Bible reading, this is one of those where your brain just kind of goes on autopilot. You know, your eyes and your mind are reading the words, but you're not comprehending what they're actually saying because somewhere in your subconscious you think, what's the point? I get it. He, he built this stuff. Okay, what's the idea? So my hope for you today is, is that we can walk away with this as more than just a boring passage in which our minds go on autopilot. My hope is that even in something that, that is seemingly as dull as the outer court of the tabernacle can indeed point us to Jesus Christ, whom the scriptures tell us all of the scriptures point us to. And so my hope is that as you leave here today and as you leave here every week, that you will be just that pointed towards and encouraged to lean upon Christ in Christ alone, by His grace alone, through faith alone. And so we're going to look at this passage today. Unlike other times, I'm, I'm not going to be able to walk you through it, because then I would be guilty of causing you to do the very thing that I just kind of chided you for doing and putting your minds on autopilot. But what I do want to do is highlight some key points in this passage and highlight for us what Scripture elsewhere has to say about this Passage And so first, let's, let's look at the structure and the size of the tabernacle and of the outer court as a whole. It is indeed important because it's here. It's in God's inspired word, so we would do well to spend some time paying attention to it. When I came to this text this week, I thought, who would be interested in this? Ah, my father-in-law, a construction worker, somebody who works with their hands, maybe an architect who's familiar with measurements and the way things fit together. And so when we look at the tabernacle, the tabernacle, which is the, the actual structure for worship inside of the outer court, which is what we're looking at, but to kind of help you get a picture, the tabernacle itself was approximately 675 square feet. As I shared with you, I do senior citizen relocation for a living, and I can tell you that approximately 600 some odd square feet is the average size of a one-bedroom apartment in a senior citizen assisted living facility. So we're not talking about a very huge structure when we talk about the tabernacle. It was approximately 15 feet wide, approximately 45 feet long. That really is not very big. However, the outer court, which surrounded the tabernacle, was a whopping 11,250 square feet, quite a bit bigger, 75 feet wide, 150 feet 
long. As you read through there to put some of these measurements in layman's terms for you, the south side had approximately had 20 pillars. The north side also had 20 pillars. The west end, which would have been the back of the outer court, had 10 pillars. And the east end, which is where the entrance to the outer court would have been, had six pillars. And then along uh, this 11,250 square foot structure were hung curtains all around with loops. And so that's, that's basically a quick summation of what we just read. Now let me point out for you, the vastness of this structure served a practical purpose. And it also gives us a helpful symbolic point. Notice again that the the outer structure was significantly larger than the inner structure which was actually used for worship. I think this illustrates a point for us that that despite what modern day American evangelicalism would like you to think, worship is indeed much more precisely laid out in the text of scripture than we would like to think. There are certainly much many more guidelines and boundaries to how we are to properly come before God in worship than we would like to think. When we look at the, the smallness of the inner structure actually used for worship versus this outer structure, this outer court, or this outer covering for this tabernacle and how much greater it was in size, we see very quickly that indeed our minds are intended by the Lord God Almighty to narrow into focus when we come before Him in worship. You're encouraged to do that every week whenever you come into the sanctuary. You're encouraged to prepare your hearts to sing God's praises to Him, to pray prayers of of confession and, and assurance and thanksgiving to Him. You are encouraged to focus your minds on the Word of God. As you prepare your hearts next week to partake of the Lord's table, you are encouraged to prepare your heart to come before God in this reverent uh, ceremony that He has laid out for us in the text. As Reformed believers, we adhere to something called the regulative principle, which is basically, to sum it up, and just so you know, you can get all kinds of different answers depending on who you ask, but a a safe summation of the regulative principle is this. If, If Scripture forbids it in worship, then absolutely do not do it. And if Scripture does not forbid it in worship, then approach it with caution. And of course, what Scripture plainly lays out in worship should certainly be present in our worship services. And so even the size of the tabernacle gives us some symbolic idea into how we are to understand coming before this holy and sovereign God in worship. Now, it also serves a practical purpose. Because you see, the entirety of the people of Israel were to come into this thing for worship, as you, as you move out of Exodus and move into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you begin to see all the festivals that were to take place and all the different sacrifices that were to take place. What these, these articles that we've been, you've been studying together and that we're studying today were used for, you start to see all the specific things that they were actually used for in worship. The people of Israel numbered somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million in number. Large number, so we need a lot of space for these people to come and worship. And, and more specifically, the Lord tells the people in Deuteronomy 12, 17, and 18 that they were to eat in His presence during the sacrificial meals. That wasn't just the men, nor was it just the ladies, but it was men, women, children. Even servants and slaves were to come with the households to which they belonged to come before God and worship in this sacrificial meal. And so you, you, can, you can picture that there had to be space for all of this to take place. So this, this kind of gives us a practical point as to the vastness 
of the outer court that surrounded the inner tabernacle. And so we can take that and we can kind of think through that as we look at what else this passage teaches us. Because it's so much more than just measurements and specific materials and how they're to be hung and how they're to be put together and directional givings of north, south, east, west, end. It's so much more than that because you you see the scriptures tell us elsewhere that the law was given to us for a few different purposes. One of the purposes for which the law was given to us was to put us in our place, to show us our sin. And yes, even whenever we come to something so simple as a structure for Old Testament worship, we indeed do see our sin. The the structure that we're looking at this morning is just this. It's the outer court of the tabernacle. You see, this is the only place that all of Israel was invited to come in the worship of God. The inner sanctuary, the holy place, the holy of holies, these were set aside for the priests to enter in, to carry out the sacrifices and the, and the burnt offerings and the incense offerings. And of course, once a year, the day of atonement in the, in the holy of holies to carry out those sacrifices. The people weren't welcome to come. When we look at that, we see very quickly our own sin, how it separates us from God, how we in our filthiness and in our rebellion by our nature ruin any shot and any opportunity to ever come before this holy God. We see very quickly the truth of our total depravity. You may even remember, and we discussed this the last time that I was with you, that as these instructions are being given, the very people for whom they are being given are at the foot of the mountain on which it is being given committing cosmic treason, committing divine adultery, worshiping a golden calf instead of the God who has given them their instructions for worship. We see plainly as these instructions are being given our own sin. Our tendency sometimes is to to read the Old Testament, to read the the blunderings of Peter as he wanders with the apostles, and, and to read other situations where people mess up really bad and to go, hey, what an idiot. What fools? What's wrong with these people? But Scripture in places such as Romans 3, 9 through 20, very quickly puts us, even as Gentiles, in our own proper place. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, points us to our own sin and our own depravity. Now Paul puts it another way in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How great we look when we look into that mirror there, huh? How awesome we are compared to these rebellious, sinful, adulterous Israelites, huh? All of us put in our proper place. All of us, as we look at this outer structure made utterly aware that in and of yourself, you have absolutely zero right to come before this holy, sovereign, and righteous God. What ruin we find ourselves in when we look to the law. However, thanks be to God that the law has a second use throughout Scripture. And so therefore, the court of the tabernacle has for us a second use. And that is just this, to point us to Jesus. To point us to Jesus. Because you see, despite all of what we read about ourselves in Romans 3, despite all of what we read about ourselves in Romans 2, had that been the end of the story, indeed we would be most pitied. Had that been the end of the story, indeed it would be pointless for us to even be here today. Because what we're here to do today is to worship this holy God. But if that's where we ended, if there was nothing else, if the story stopped, we're ruined. We're hopeless, but it didn't stop there. You see, Paul went on in Ephesians to tell us, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you hear the language that the Apostle Paul is using there? You see, yes, this outer court shows us our sin. It shows us our inability to approach this holy God, but it shows us something else. It shows us this holy God's graciousness in being willing to provide a way for us to come before him in worship and being willing to condescend and to tabernacle with us and to worship with us, to draw us to himself in worship, to provide all that we need to come before him in worship. You see... The law, in some sense, was a republication of the covenant of works, but it nonetheless was also part of the covenant of grace. That yes, do this and live, do this and die, but the fact that a means of worship was given to show us our sin and to point us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is an act of grace on God's part. And so as we come to this outer court, I want you to imagine with me entering into those curtains on the east end. 
And imagining, imagine entering into this outer court, being able to look at the outside of the tabernacle where the sacrifices and the offerings took place on your behalf. As you entered this outer court and you took part in the sacrificial meals with your family and with your brothers and sisters and with the saints who came together to worship and you did it just outside where atonement was made for your sins. Yes, it shows us our sin and our unworthiness, but also it shows us God's grace and mercy in salvation and providing a way for us to come before him in worship. The tabernacle was a continuation of and even some, some, some senses a beginning of God's coming down and condescending before his people. And as we see a progression throughout the scriptures of this, the tabernacle then eventually develops into the temple who God tells David, you won't build, but your son will build it for me. And of course, that son Solomon building the temple was a foreshadowing of a greater and better son of David who would come and who would build an ultimate temple, who would point to the temple and say, do you see this temple? I tell you, I will tear it down and in three days I will build it up again. And John tells us that he didn't say that of the structure, but he said that of himself, of his body as he would be buried in the grave and rise again on the third day. And Paul comes to this happening. He comes to this good news of God coming and condescending and tabernacling with us and coming and showing us the light in our darkness and dying on our behalf and resurrecting again on the third day in victory over our sin, over death, over the grave, over our enemy, the devil, over everything that stands against us. And he does that, and Paul says that in that he's building a new and better tabernacle for himself. A people, not of just Jews or Gentiles, but of Jews and Gentiles brought together under the banner of Christ Jesus. The one who this outer court points us to. Reminding us that in and of ourselves we have no right to come before him and worship but reminding us that he indeed has come and made us worthy to come before him in worship. So we're sinners in need of saving grace, but we are sinners in need of saving grace who find that saving grace in Christ Jesus. Now a question is begged, what now? Francis Schaeffer famously asked it this way, how shall we then live? In light of this good news, thus the third use of the law and thus the third use of the outer court as we approach it in this text, that we are now freed to obey. You see, as Calvinists, we like to get into arguments with Arminians about free will. And as Presbyterian Calvinists, we tend to do that forgetting that our confession has an entire chapter dedicated to free will. That indeed, sure, You're free to do whatever you want to do. Here's the problem. All you want to do apart from Christ and the work of the Spirit in you is sin and disobey God. But in the gospel, in the good news of Christ, come and died in your place and of the Spirit regenerating your heart. The good news is this, that you have been given a new heart. Your heart of stone, as Ezekiel says, has been replaced with a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh beats to worship this one true, holy, and righteous God through Christ Jesus, His Son, who died on your behalf. 
And so we're freed to obey. And so this third use of the law is to restrain sin. Now, some call this the civil use because it's used in a general sense as well, that it restrains sin in civil societies. You can see this built together even in our own laws of the land here in America. Murder is a crime. You commit murder, you're punished in some sense. Stealing, in some sense, is a crime. You steal, you're punished in some sense. And so the law restrains sin generally. But for the believer, the law restrains sin in this way that we're continually reminded of where we were in our sin and disobedience and what Christ did to save us from that sin. And what that should do, what that does to a believer is it enables them and places in them a desire to walk in holiness and righteousness. And so as we came to Exodus chapter 38, I just want to simply point you out to the the first little part of what we read in verse 9. And he... He being Ohalalel, made the court. And then it begins to basically repeat everything we read in Exodus 27. What did he do? He did exactly what he was instructed to do. The Lord gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses wrote it down as he was instructed to do. It was then passed on to Ahalel, who was the, the constructor, the builder, or the, at least the designer for the tabernacle. And he, he came and he did exactly what he was told to do. And this tabernacle then is, is preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures themselves. And then therefore we're able to read of it and we're able to see our sin. We're able to see how it points us to Jesus Christ. And we are able to see how it shows us how we have been freed in Jesus Christ to live a holy, godly, and upright life. This act of obedience serves as a pointing forward to the ultimate act of obedience in Christ who has now freed us in our own acts of obedience. Something must be said for each piece of the tabernacle and its contents with regards to the obedience that that it was made exactly as God had commanded it. Paul picks up in this language also. In Ephesians chapter 2, he's already told us in Ephesians 2 of our sin and our ruin. And he's told us of how we have been brought into one family, how that wall of hostility has been broken down. But he also says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, but therefore we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now when he says prepared beforehand, just in case any of us haven't been well educated in the room on what that means, that that's, that's not beforehand as in before this was written only. It's not beforehand as in even before Christ came. But in all of eternity past, our good works have been foreordained for our good and for God's glory. You see, you sit in this room today 
as saints. Symbol justice epicator, simultaneously a saint and a sinner. Aware of your sin, aware of your unworthiness, aware of your unrighteousness, but also hopefully utterly aware of the grace that has been provided for you in Christ Jesus. And hopefully by that compelled to then live a godly and an upright life. Walking out these good works that just as your salvation was predestined and prepared beforehand, so are the good works. Let me remind you, good works created in Christ Jesus. You see, you're going to leave today. You're going to remember what the preacher said. That, okay, I was a sinner. Jesus died. That should compel me to obey. And you're going to go home and you're going to try. And you're going to get a fight with your spouse. Your kids are going to tick you off. Somebody's going to spill something at the restaurant. Their good pants are going to be ruined. Now mom has to wash those or maybe dad, however it happens in your house. You're going to go to work tomorrow and it's Monday. Say that again, it's Monday. It's going to be hard. You're going to have things you're going to have to do that you don't want to do. And you're going to have to deal with it for five more days before the weekend comes. You're just going to get angry and you're going to get frustrated. And you're going to feel beat down. You're going to feel burdened. You're going to feel like you're not good enough. You're not going to know what to do. And you're to remember this. That those good works that you're supposed to do were created for you in Christ Jesus. The one who came and died for you purely and solely and only all because of grace. Grace. So yes, be compelled by the gospel to live a holy and a just and an upright life. But when you fail, as John tells us, I write these things to you little children so that you would not sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with God the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Because that righteousness that you've been saved into is an alien righteousness. It's a, it's, a, it's a righteousness that's outside of yourself. It's a righteousness that has been imputed to you. So don't look to your inner self. Don't look to your inner strength. Don't listen to your heart to tell you how you should then live. Look to Jesus, the one who this outer court and this tabernacle as a whole points us to. Father, I pray for myself and for these people that we would be compelled by your word to walk out our Christian life looking to Jesus just as much today and tomorrow and the rest of our days as we did on the day when he called us to his self by his spirit. Help us in our efforts to walk in godly and holy and upright lives to remember that our ultimate salvation Though some would have us foolishly believe this is not dependent on what we do any more than our salvation on that cross was. That it is all dependent on Christ and what Christ has done. And because of what Christ has done, we can indeed live free. In his name we pray. Amen.